So turn with me once again to Judges chapter 4. And this week we will be in verse 17 of Judges chapter 4. And then if you want to also keep your finger in uh, Judges chapter 5, we're going to be reading uh, the conclusion of that poem as well, starting in verse 24. So I'm going to read starting in uh, Judges chapter 4, uh, verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, and do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and when she said, and she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come. I will show you the man who you are seeking. So he went to her into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And then Judges chapter 5, verse 24 as well. It's Deborah's song uh, concluding this same portion of scripture. And it says, Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. She asked for water, or he asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl, She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, and where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window, she peered, the mother of Sisera wailing through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed, she answers herself, have not they found and divided the spoil, a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but for your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. So these verses, uh, coincide with the same set of events, and it concludes our uh, text of uh, Deborah and Barak. Um, So this uh, study I've decided to title A Detailed Salvation. And the reason for that is because you will notice, uh, remember uh, earlier we saw in verse 11 of chapter 4, how the detail was laid out before us, that there is this person, a Kenite, who has moved locations, and it's not really clear to us at that point why that's an important detail. But it becomes clear later in verse 17, what we read here, that that was actually something that was orchestrated by God and used in his providence to bring about Israel's salvation. And I'm just going to read that verse to you. Remember, we're told that uh, Barak is summoning his army. And then in the story of his army being summoned in verse 11, it takes a break and it says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father of Moses. And he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. We're told that, and then we're told that Sisera is also responding to Barak's army. So we have two forces meeting, and then in the middle of that, there's like this parenthetical detail 
about uh, Heber. Now, this is very much like in a movie where they kind of pan and foreshadow something going to happen. It kind of seems obscure. It wouldn't be uh, much uh, significance, except for the fact that the camera has chosen to focus its attention on it, and it's keying you in onto this detail, which will become important later. And so the author does here for us, and it becomes clear why that detail was given, uh, because we see first and foremost here in the text, Sisera fleeing away. So Sisera, remember, he was defeated. He was uh, routed by the Lord. He was struck into chaos. All of his troops were destroyed. And now there's one person who is uh, still left of that entire army, and it's Sisera. And as he flees, he takes flight. Uh, we know that the Lord is not going to let him get away because the Lord's already orchestrated in verse 11 his downfall. And so it's, verse 17 says, But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. I think it's interesting that he, flee, he flees away on foot um, because his whole uh, thing, the, the whole thing that he's known for is having 900 chariots with horses. And so now he's been reduced to running on foot away from the battlefield because his chariots were more of a liability than an asset. He doesn't have any horses left. He doesn't have any men left. So he's just this reduced kind of shallow husk of a person with no power. He's been clearly stripped of all his ability. And this is going to continue to go downhill for him. So as he flees, uh, we're reminded of something uh, in Psalm 20, verse 7, where it says, Some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we, we trust in the Lord our God. And so Sisera trusted in his horses and in his chariots, and that clearly uh, did not work out well for him. And no doubt the psalmist is drawing on the imagery of this text when he's, uh, he's rhyming that psalm. And so you see here, uh, he flees, he meets this woman, Jael. And the only detail we're told about Jael is she is the wife of this person who in verse 11 we were told had picked up his camp and moved away from the Kenites into this other location. And for whatever reason, it seems that this person, uh, Heber, has a kind of peace with Sisera. Now, we're not told necessarily whether he cut a deal with Sisera and he was in league with the people who were against Israel, or if Sisera just wasn't oppressing him in the same way that he was oppressing the rest of the Israelites. But nevertheless, Sisera thinks it's okay to come and rest in this location. Either he fled there on accident or he fled there on purpose. But the person who meets him is not Heber and it's not any of Heber's servants. In fact, it's Jael who meets him. She sees him coming from a distance. She goes out and intercepts him. Uh, and she says to him, don't be afraid, turn inside to my tent and I will essentially take care of you. She's, let, she's getting his guard to go down. And in these verses, we have something akin to what we saw with Ehud and Eglon, where Ehud says, I have a secret message for you, king, and he kind of pulls him aside. And so you see the use in the book of Judges twice now of deception as a tactic that is used by the judges for victory. And here in this case, it's Jael using deception to lower Sisera's uh, guard. And that becomes clear as the text moves on. Because at first when we're reading it, it might seem like she's actually going to shelter him and take him in. Uh, but I, I, you see as the text moves that that's not the case. Because he asks for water, and then she gives him a skin of milk, which is uh, a more robust, uh, if you like, a recovery beverage. He's just fought a battle all day. And now uh, he asks for water. He's thirsty. He's completely exhausted. And at the peak of his tiredness, she gives him a, a hearty meal, uh, milk to drink, which is uh, a, a commodity for them. And that would double down on his tiredness to give him almost this rest and digest. So now he's extremely tired. He's had a full meal. Now he's going to sleep nice and deep, which is exactly what she's intending to happen. Her whole intent is to sneak up on him after he falls asleep. And this becomes clear because she doesn't give him water, lest his hunger might give him a restless sleep. She's going to give him milk and she's going to ensure that he feels well cared for, well comforted. And this is, again, continuing to let his guard down. So you see there in the text, Sisera resting. And then as, as the text moves, you see not only does he rest, but first he asks her, he says, please give me something to drink. 
And the second thing, uh, the second time he makes a request of her, it's not even a request, he's commanding her uh, to go stand watch. And this uh, kind of reveals a little bit of the character of Sisera, if you like. He considers himself to be a man of authority and a man of power. So as soon as he's rejuvenated, he starts giving orders again. He says, go ahead, stand at the tent. If anyone comes to you, tell them I'm not here. And you'll notice she doesn't honor that request. With the, with the water, she says she's going to give him milk instead. But with this, she said, he says, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. And then in verse 21, the transition goes sharply. It says, but, and then it's going to tell you instead what she does. But Jael, the wife of Heber, takes a tent peg. So she immediate, it immediately moves from her being obedient to Sisera. And then the text sharply moves to her real plan the whole time. And the real plan is she's going to take this tent peg and she's going to wait till he's asleep. She's going to softly sneak up on him and she's going to kill him while he's asleep. And this has been her plan the whole time. The whole other part of the alluring was just making sure he had his guard down. And so then you see, uh, she, she goes to him. She takes a tent peg. She strikes him through the head with it. Uh, nails him to the ground, uh, as you like. And then rather than when someone comes up to the tent and asks her, is anyone here? She actually goes out to Barak, who's in pursuit of uh, Sisera. And she says, come, I have him in my tent. So she does essentially the stark opposite of what Sisera commanded her to do. And that is clear in the text. And I think the author makes it clear because he's, he's giving you a picture of whose side Jael is on. Mm. And regardless of what we can say about her husband and the kind of strange peace that he has with Sisera, uh, we can see that Jael is deemed righteous and with the people of Israel by her actions. She's put herself in league, if you like, with the Israelites. And this becomes clear. And it's not at all uh, a moral blight on the text that she uses deception or a moral blight that she uses uh, this kind of tactic of killing him while he's in his sleep. It seems that the text not only it doesn't it's not neutral on it. It actually comments and says she's blessed for her actions. So we're going to take a look at that um, in a little bit. Um, but you'll see uh, as the victory comes to a conclusion, uh, you'll notice that um, Barak uh, in his pursuit of Sisera is is doing something for us, which is helpful which is he's doing what the Israelites were told to do way back when, when they settled the promised land. So they were told when they were defeating people, they're supposed to defeat them entirely. And you remember that little text uh, where they, they're going to conquer a city and they, they catch one person outside the city and they, they say, we're going to let you get away if we can destroy the city. So he lets them in, they destroy the city and they let that one guy get away. And in letting that one guy get away, he starts a whole nother city with the same name and with the same problems. And so Barak is not going to make that same mistake. He's going to pursue every single last person. He's going to subdue all the enemies of the Israelites in this victory. He's not content with just a victory. He's, he's going to press it to its fullest extent. So he pursues Sisera in that way. And you'll notice that in verse uh, 24, the hand of the people of Israel presses even harder against Jabin the king until his whole, uh, his whole army is destroyed. So they're not content with one victory over their oppressors. They're going to push it and be faithful to the word of the Lord all the way to the end. So you see that there in the text, uh, which, is, which is interesting that Barak uh, learns from his predecessors in that way. So uh, I want to take a look then at the 24th verse of chapter 5 and just see what the text says about uh, Jael. And I think this is pretty significant for us to learn from because, again, it doesn't... Sometimes when something morally problematic happens in the Old Testament, there's no comment. You know, for example, in the, uh, in the case of polygamy, when someone takes multiple wives, the text doesn't comment on it. It just says this happened. Sometimes it says this happened and it was bad, but sometimes it just says it happened. In this case, it says it happened. And for us, we want it, we're expecting the text to go. And this is like an unideal kind of victory. And the text is going to make 
uh, some, some caveats for it. But instead, what happens is the text blesses Jael for the action that she took. It says, most blessed of women be Jael. Now, that's not, an, that's not a light statement. She's saying, most blessed of women be you. And if you're thinking, you might have heard that kind of phrasing before. In Luke chapter 1, verse 42, that's the same exact phrasing that Elizabeth uses for Mary when she says, most blessed are you, Mary, among women. Blessed be the fruit of your womb, Jesus, right? She, he's saying, she's saying to her, you are blessed. And this is, the, this is the Hebrew word that is used and translated that same way in Greek. So they're, they're parallel words, if you like. There's multiple words that can be translated blessed, but these are the same idea that is being carried over. And so it says, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. So it says twice, she is a blessed woman. And it says specifically why she's blessed. In verse 25, she says, he's blessed because when he asked for water, she gave him milk. So in giving him this royal meal, she, she's blessed for that. And then what she blessed for, and that milk detail is only two lines, but the detail about her execution of Sisera is a lot of stanzas, or it's uh, two whole verses, right? It's she sent the tent peg, to, she sent her hand to the tent peg with her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. So just going language after language after language about the killing of Sisera. And this is something that the Israelites are uh, glorifying her for. They're, they're giving her praise for her, her actions of victory. So this is not something Israel is shying away from. In the West, we can shy away from this kind of violence, um, but we have to keep in mind that a people oppressed doesn't really have a problem with their oppressor meeting a just kind of punishment, right? This is, this is almost the kind of vindication that the Jewish people would have felt when they heard that Hitler was finally killed in, in Nazi Germany, that he'd finally met his end. Because he, and they, they just want that story told over and over again because of how wicked he was to them. And so for them, it's not a problem that Sisera dies because Sisera has been oppressing them in a, in a hard kind of way. He's been cruelly oppressing the people of Israel. And then the, the text in uh, Judges 5 contrasts the two most important women, if you like, in Sisera's life. It contrasts the woman who brought him into the world and it contrasts the woman who took him out of the world. It contrasts uh, Jael with his mother and his mother is, is wondering where he is, almost uh, sarcastically. The, the author is kind of making fun of this, that her mother, his mother is just expecting him to have won, to come back with the spoils of war. Uh, but instead, what's happening is the whole time she's unaware, she has no idea that he's been dead, and he's, he's kind of met his just end. And I think it's, it's probably worth noting in this text as well, um, this language of this, this kind of culmination of the victory, which you'll see both in chapter 4, uh, verse 23, um, where it says, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. So again, it's putting God at the center of the victory. And then uh, if you keep your finger there in uh, chapter 5, verse 31, uh, the, the focus of the victory is very detailed. And then it zooms out in verse 31. It says, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So the, the text takes this one example of salvation and then zooms it out further into a broader picture of what it is like for God to have victory over his enemies. And while uh, Deborah and Barak and Jael were all used of God for the salvation, the author of Judges attributes the salvation to God alone. It's a God who subdued this king. It's God who subdued Sisera. It's God who was the ultimate worker in the salvation. And so in verse 31 of Deborah's song, it makes sense that God is the one who gets the praise. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And that's uh, a significant phrase because this brings us back to a question about the justice of God. 
So it says, may, your, may all your enemies perish, O Lord. So it's not just saying, may Sisera perish this way. It actually zooms this out as almost a parable of how all the enemies of God are to face their end. And this is not something that's just a New Testament idea that's, or just an Old Testament idea that's done away with in the New Testament. If you'll look with me in the New Testament, there's actually specific language like this. So that's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where you see this exact same language used um, concerning Jesus and his rule. So it's 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse 5. And it says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So God is considering it just to afflict those who afflict his people. Verse 7, and to grant relief to the you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed, to this end we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the thought there from Paul as he's writing is that the ultimate glory of Christ, the ultimate vindication of the saints, is in the justice of Jesus coming back to not only redeem uh, and, and relieve those who are oppressed, but also to rightfully judge the people who were afflicting his saints. And you see the same kind of picture in Revelation where the martyrs pray to God and say, how long, O Lord, will you wait for your justice to be revealed on the earth? So while this is a concept of, uh, of almost like vengefulness that might be difficult for us in the West, uh, it is the very uh, heartbeat of what makes a saint confident in God because God's justice is going to be deemed righteous in the end. And there's one more text that I want to look at that kind of speaks to this language, which is in Psalm 87, or sorry, Psalm 85. They're pretty close, so. I'm sorry, what did I say, Psalm 85? It's Psalm 83. <laughs> even closer. That's even closer, yeah. My eyes are going, I guess. So. <laughs> So Psalm 83, and I just want to read uh, just a handful of verses from this psalm. The first one is verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 83. It says, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. So he's saying that there's enemies of God. They are, they are up against God. So God shouldn't be silent because that would be an unjust thing to happen. And then I want to key you into verse 9. It says, Do to them as you did to Midian as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. So he's specifically drawing the picture of the victory of the Israelites over, um, over Sisera, and he's using that as a picture of what it's like for God to have victory. He says, do to all your enemies as you did to Sisera. And then in verse uh, 17, or sorry, in verse 16, it says, 
fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So the whole reason for God punishing these people is to glorify his name. And that, that language there, uh, fill their faces with shame or put their faces to shame, is to be contrasted with something else you see in Psalm, for example, 34 verse 5, where it says, those who look on him are radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. And so you have two contrasting people, those people who are put to shame in the judgment of God and those people who are never put to shame because of his righteousness and his mercy. And both people groups are pictures of the glory of God, his justice on one hand and his mercy on the other. And so what we can't do is when we read back into the text of Sisera, say, well, Sisera was somehow unjustly dealt with by God because Sisera received exactly what he deserved. In fact, God's justice is on display in Sisera's death. And also his mercy is on display in the redemption of Israel, who's guilty of kind of the same exact thing that Sisera is guilty of. In fact, if you read into Isaiah and Jeremiah, the Israelites become oppressors of their own people in the way that Sisera oppresses them. And so they become guilty of the same things, but rather than, <laughs> rather than meeting their end, what happens instead is the people of Israel are redeemed. They're bought back by God. They're continually exhorted to turn back to him and, and, and run to him. And so you have this picture of God's almost favor for his beloved people, for his chosen people. And that's not a bad thing because God will show mercy on whom he will and he will show justice on whomever he will. And he's just regardless because his justice is perfect. He's a perfect God. He's a perfect just judge of the earth. And we can take a lot of comfort in that. And there's two allusions that I want to make to this and to the, the New Testament and the gospel. Um, and they, they kind of come one after the other. The first one uh, is the language that's used of Sisera uh, in the poem. It says that uh, when Sisera is killed by Jael in verse uh, 26, it says that she crushed his head. And this is an interesting picture because that's the same kind of language that's used in Genesis 3.15, where God says to Satan, I will, I, you will bruise my servant's heel, but he will crush your head. This is a picture of the same kind of way that all of God's enemies are going to meet this end. Satan will meet this end. Sisera will meet this end. Every single enemy of God is going to meet this end, that their head will be crushed. This is an utter kind of destruction language. And this, the second picture I want to pull up is the kind of language that's used of Jaya, I alluded to this earlier, is also used of Mary in the New Testament. And it's, it's significant that both women are considered blessed for the role that they play in God's salvation. Mary is considered blessed because she's going to bear the child that's going to ultimately lead Israel to victory. And Jael is considered blessed because she was the, the means through which the enemy was crushed. And so both women are significant typologically towards one another. Jael, if you like, is a picture of Mary and that she is used by God to bring about salvation or victory. And so there's, there's two illustrations. There are two illusions of the kind of salvation that God has. And he, as he commands his people to love him, you know, with, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, he sees it fit also to redeem his people with all his, with, he redeems their hearts back to him. He redeems their minds back to him. He redeems their strength and their bodies back to him. He frees them physically. He frees them from their oppression spiritually. He frees them totally. And his salvation is comprehensive. And I think that's a good thing because in Judges, uh, it's, it's hard for us sometimes when there's so much gore and violence involved in salvation. Um, but nevertheless, it's, it's God's means of bringing about that complete total salvation. He doesn't just save them spiritually. He saves them to be flourishing. He saves them in their bodies to be a people that's established. He saves them militarily. He does all of it. And I think it's the same kind of thing in the New Testament where Jesus says, he's not just saving us 
in our spirits. He's going to come back and he's going to save us in our bodies, in our souls. He's going to redeem us totally from that thing. And that has to happen even in the New Testament by means of a bloody, a, a bloody uh, iron stake, right? The cross, Jesus is nailed to it in the New Testament. And that's the means through which the salvation is brought about in the same way that the stake is nailed to the ground with Sisera. And all of it is kind of this alluding picture to the New Testament of the kind of salvation that God provides. It's a complete salvation. It's detailed in every regard. It's planned out carefully ahead of time. And all of it results in the glory of God as it does here, so it does in the gospel as well. So let's pray and then we can move into some discussion. Father God, we are so thankful for the newness and the freshness which you uh, breathe your word out to us every day. Lord, we uh, praise you and we thank you for your kindness, for your mercy. And Lord, we also praise you and we thank you for your justice and your right judgment of all your enemies. Lord, we thank you that you saved us while we were your enemies and that you deemed it fit to do so. Lord, we realize there's nothing in us that is worthy of that kind of claim, and yet you, in your great abundant wisdom, have deemed it so. And we, uh, we would be wise not, not to move on from that too soon. Lord, we thank you for all that you are and all who you continue to reveal yourself to be. I pray that you would give us hearts that are sensitive and uh, minds that are fresh and sharp to um, learn from your word and also to meditate on your word and uh, ultimately, Lord, to live out your word. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.